I want to thank you for the opportunity, and I sincerely regret that Greg had to go home. Uh, just looking at the plan of the lessons, I was very impressed. What godly people do, and we must be godly. And as godly people, the things you had on that list are things that we do need to be doing. Um, I always begin all my meetings uh, at the very beginning on the need to read the Bible. I think everybody says, yes, we need to read the Bible. But I don't believe we read it as we should. I remember one time I was going to a couple of home Bible studies in Argentina, and there were several people telling me they read the Bible every day. And so they had a block of wood that had uh, like a tray in there, but very slender. And it had colored sheets of paper in there. And they pulled out one, and maybe it would say, Jesus wept. And, and they put it back in. I read the Bible today. Well, in one way, they've read the Word of God, but not in a profitable way. And what I would try to get people to do, where I attend, even in South America, we need to adopt books of the Bible, and we need to read through the Bible. I've already told you about the junior high class. When I first moved to Starkville, uh, I suggested that we study the book of Leviticus. Uh, a lot of junior high classes are not going to be that interested just by saying that. But I told them, we'll have to read it once a week. And I will do the same. You know, you can't teach something you would not do. And so we read the book of Leviticus. And after a year, several came back to me and they said, they felt like that reading really helped them. That's what a teacher wants to hear. You know, maybe you think we want to hear, that was a great lesson. And it helped me so much. Well, we are encouraged by that. But to implement uh, a program in your life where you'll be reading, and I mean reading, the Bible. And then I like telling people, you need to read aloud. If you're reading silently, I've done this. I make the same mistakes as others. My mind can drift even while I'm looking at all the words. And then, if it's drifted, so like from the window of a, where the tree's just outside to the forest, then I have to go back, where was I before I got distracted? And I don't like that feeling. And so, I've learned that reading aloud keeps you from getting distracted. And when you read poorly aloud, it awakens you. It's like, wait a minute, I'm not understanding this. And so I look down and I'll say, oh, I didn't respect the comma there. Or I didn't put a period where they put a period. The, the writers do, or the writers, the translators and the, the versions that are out there, they want it to be readable. And so they give very much attention to punctuation. And that will help you in the reading. Uh, Paul said, and we've mentioned this, he told the Ephesians, when you read, 
what I have risen briefly. You may have my understanding in the mystery of Christ. And if I were to ask, who would like to have Paul's understanding in the mystery of Christ? I think we wouldn't just raise the hand, we'd stand up. Yeah, I want that. Well, he says, you can have it. You may have it by reading. And so, do not underestimate reading. And when people say, no, you got to study. First of all, you can't study well if you haven't read. And uh, so, you've got to get into the book and read it. And what would a lifetime be like reading the Bible? Maybe we could say aggressively, where we're trying to get through the Bible every year. And I like getting through a book. Generally, I do a thing called the wheel within a wheel. Don't want to make that sound hard. I borrowed the terminology from the book of Ezekiel. But the Gospel of John, if I were to give you just a, an idea, I would read chapter 1, 2, and 3, then chapter 1 again. I'd read 4, 5, and 6, and then chapter 2 again. I get to the end of the book like that. When I get to the last three chapters, I'm reading chapter 7 again, and then I come, because the book has 21 chapters. And I come back to the beginning, I read chapter 1, 2, and 3, and then chapter 8 again. And in so doing, I align the book differently by keeping order. That's really important. And uh, it helps me to see, well, some things that are highlighted even better that way. And in the course of a year, if I'm not mistaken, you'd be reading 64 times the Gospel of John. I've done that with the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is the longest book of the Bible. But I want to get a feel for it. I want to know it. You know what I do with Jeremiah? I pick up on all the repeated phrases and sentences in the book. And that in and of itself can give you a great lesson to consider. Well, tonight we're in the book of Leviticus. Uh, sometimes, maybe someone would say like John F. Kennedy when he said, we're going to the moon and we're going because it's hard. And make it a challenge. Well, maybe that's the way we need to do a few books of the Bible. We do it because it is hard. But we know it can be so beneficial. And I would encourage you to read like that. I try to encourage everybody to read like that. But in the book of Leviticus, you might say this is a hard book, but if you read it several times, you're going to come away saying, I don't even know why I didn't read that book before. And I've heard even preachers say, you don't need to read the book of Leviticus. It hurts me to hear that because I don't think they've had the experience that they could have if they've read it. Now, I'm not saying a lot of preachers are saying this, but I don't think it's wise to think we need to uh, 
abbreviate the Bible, you know, condense it. You know, the Reader's Digest put out a Bible for you to read, and what they would do, the things that are said by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they'd have a way of putting that one sentence together, and you don't have to read as much. Well, God didn't write books that way. And if I can encourage your imagination a little bit, if God can create the universe in seven days, and he could raise his son from the dead three days later, then I believe God can write about a book that has no expiration date. And a lot of times people are saying, Nah, the Bible's not for our times. You need to get in line with the Bible. The Bible does not need to get in line with you. I think Matt said something. I'm going to try to use this phrase more often. Or, no, it was Evan, I think it was. I don't make the rules. I just try to follow them. I think that's a beautiful thought. Isn't that the way we view the Bible? I didn't write it. God spoken into existence through the mouth of holy prophets of the Old Testament. But we're not making the rules. We're just trying to obey them. And how can you obey what you don't know? And if I were to really do a lesson on the sins of ignorance, chapter 4, 5, and 6, there are sins of ignorance, but you'll still be guilty even though you're ignorant. But God will provide a way for you to be forgiven. I was doing a class on that today, and I was telling the person that my favorite part is when you get to the end of the paragraph, it will say, and he shall be forgiven, and he shall be forgiven, and he shall be forgiven. Don't you like knowing that you can do what God wants you to do and you'll be forgiven. Day of Pentecost was that way. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. They didn't have it yet, but they could have it. And by the way, the crucifixion of Jesus is classified by Jesus himself as a sin of ignorance. He said, Father, forgive them for they Know not what they do. And Peter, when addressing the the religious leaders who were so heavily involved in that, in chapter 3 of Acts, he'll say, I know, we know you did it in ignorance. But that's never been justification for doing wrong. Never. And will never, ever be justification. Sometimes young people will maybe argue a little bit, well, I didn't know better. Well, a lot of us have not known better, but we want to know better. And playing like uh, you don't need to know, and, you know, ignorance is bliss. No, ignorance is not bliss. It is dangerous. You want to know. And I don't know how you can know if you don't read. Now, I'd be in favor of study, but get that reading done. 
and keep it going for all your life. And it will, it will influence you. And, well, I don't want to just keep going down that, that trail. But I just want you to appreciate it. Last night, I was mentioning that I wanted to show you the connection between the Day of Atonement and the Year of Jubilee. Uh, I was fascinated by that when I finally really started paying attention to Leviticus. And the beauty of that is they both occur on the very same day. Now, I want to think about that. The Day of Atonement, you can go to Leviticus chapter 16, where we get pretty much all the information in that one chapter. But what we want to appreciate, how did the people of Israel celebrate, if you could call it that? How would they respect that day of atonement? They would afflict their souls. In chapter 16, uh, turn one page too far, excuse me, and in verse uh, 31, at least this verse, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest, talking about the Day of Atonement. Uh, it says, a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. Now, this is mentioned even in the New Testament. Don't just kind of go past this and say, well, yeah, I know, but in Christ, we don't have a response that way to the Day of Atonement. You might be surprised a little bit. Because the other feast that occurred, and you might note that it occurs in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. Now, I'm giving you the, the timing of it. On my calendars, and I look through calendars from time to time, and I'll see during the course of a year, sometimes in October, varying a little bit, I'll see the phrase, Yom Kippur. Well, the more I read the Bible, the more I pick up on a lot of these words. Yom is the word for day. And Kippur is the way, the word for atonement. And I like knowing, you know, I just like seeing that and I want to ponder for a moment what the people of God were doing in the Old Testament on Yom Kippur and afflicting their souls. If you want to do more research, you can find out they didn't eat. They didn't eat for 24 hours. They didn't drink anything. It was afflicting their being, afflicting their soul. Well, what would that say? That says sins is a grievous thing, and you just—it's you know—we say it's a feast day, but it's not a typical feast like we would imagine in the Old Testament. No, this is where they don't eat, they don't drink, and. I remember one time I, I went to a home Bible study in Argentina and, 
I got there with my friend and uh, that we were going to do the, uh, he and I had to study with the individuals there. And he comes to the door and he looks a little bit on the sleepy side and he said, y'all came just when I was breaking my fast. Uh, and he said it was a half fast. And I was wondering, I hadn't seen that term before. What would a half fast be? Well, he said, I went to bed last night and I slept to noon and I broke my fast. I said, oh, that's not biblical fasting at all. Not even in the New Testament. In the New Testament, they'd be praying while fasting. It's not a diet where I'll just make sure I, I bring my passions, physical appetites under control. No, you do something with that time. You don't sleep. You'd be praying. That church prayed in Antioch before they sent Paul and Barnabas on that first journey. They prayed and fasted. When I first went to Argentina, there was a fellow from Columbus. Wheeler was his last name. I don't see him much anymore. But he told me that he fasted while I was gone. Now, it would have been a hard fast because most people didn't know where I was during that that journey. My flight had been canceled, and I was getting in touch with my mother, but nobody wanted to talk to my mother to make her worry, and she could have relieved the tension, you know, if they had asked her. But a lot of folks, Bill Holmes tell me, he thought maybe I was dead. And so they didn't want to go to my mother with that. But... I appreciate my friend fasting, praying that what we would try to do would be be to the glory of God. And I think that's the way they did it in, in Antioch before they sent out Barnabas and Saul at that time. And they fasted to appoint elders. You think they just went to bed and slept? So they woke up and had an appetite to eat something. They're praying and fasting. Those two terms are linked together. They're not meant to be separated. And so if we're going to fast, do it with prayer. And I believe there's some foundation for that. And, well, I don't want to go too far because you'll be thinking, I'm trying to, be an example for you. I'm not trying right now, but I do believe we need to pray and fast. Now, the Day of Atonement. I go further into the book, because I'll tell you something else about the Day of Atonement that is fascinating to me. It's the high priest, when he goes into the most holy place, he doesn't go in with the attire that makes him look like like a king, like royalty, like that breastplate of gems that he has on his breast representing each of the tribes. And the blue and 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 the bells and oh that was very ornate. But when it, when he went into the most holy place, he took all of that off 
and put it on what would be any priest's robe that the others are wearing. You see, you don't go into the presence of God ornate like I'm somebody important or special. You go in in a very humble way. You're not even supposed to look up while you're in there. You're carrying incense and that cloud will help you not to be staring up. God didn't want you doing that. Didn't want Aaron doing it. He didn't want any other high priest to do it. And so there's that that carefulness. The other thing that got my attention the first couple of times, Aaron has to wash his body before he goes in and after he comes out. And it's just like that moment is such that he cannot go out, even with those robes, no matter how humble they were. He cannot go out because it would sanctify the people. You say, isn't that what we want to do? Well, the story of Nadab and Abihu we talked about last night, there's a sense in which God set them apart. What they touched, they would never touch again. And the contact that others had in removing their body, they pulled on their tunics to drag them out, not to come in contact with them. Holiness is a serious theme of the Bible. Without it, the Hebrew writer says, no one will see God. It's an essential. Now, I've already told you, the book of Leviticus has the holy word 152 times. I like telling people, if I were to lift up the book of Leviticus, it would drip with holiness. It just permeates the text. And so we want to read that. And if Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, quotes Leviticus where it says, Be holy, for I am holy. And that is stated three times within this book. Then I believe Peter is saying, you need to go where I'm telling you. I want you to go to Leviticus. That's where I got it. Now, you say he's divinely inspired. Yes. He, under divine inspiration, points to the book of Leviticus. That's why I hold it in the highest thing. I know it has the vindication. Vindication, validation is what I want to say. The validation of God, both in the Old and also in the New Testament. Well, coming to chapter 25. And in my Bible, uh, the people who uh, put together the New King James Version, uh, in verse 8, has a paragraph heading saying, the year of Jubilee. Let's look there. Verse 8, and you shall count seven Sabbaths of years. Oh, by the way, you would learn a lot about the usage of seven in the Old Testament. And there are Sabbath days, 
there are Sabbath years. Read on. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years. And the time of the seventh Sabbath of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Well, that math is easy. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. Now, I want you to imagine the mixed emotion right now. If you know anything already about the year of Jubilee, it's, uh, I have a friend that likes to say this, it's the reset button of the Old Testament. And it's because some people become rich and they can continue to become richer. But in the year of Jubilee, all debts are canceled. All land is given back to the families of the tribes that were owners of that when Joshua brought them in. Now, can you imagine the emotion on a day like that? Let's say little Johnny. Uh, Johnny's not a Hebrew name. Well, let's say Johnny has grown up. He saw that his father wasted the money that he had. He sold the land. There was no way they were going to get it back. And it would look like he's condemned to poverty. But over the course of a lifetime, almost everyone would see one jubilee every 50 years. Well, if you saw one when you were 60, you could probably see it again when you were 60. But what would be good for little Johnny? He might say, if I had been in charge, I wouldn't have made all the mistakes that my father has made. Oh, if I had an opportunity to do it the right way. You get it in the year of Jubilee. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And so the land goes back. Even the debts you have are torn up. Can you imagine why it's called the year of Jubilee? Everybody's happy. They're rejoicing. Let me ask this question. And I don't mean to cause uh, uh, an upheaval in the United States. I really think there's an upheaval already. Yeah, but coming back. Let's say it's the credit card companies every 50 years were to say, we've made a lot of money, but we would like to turn up the debts of everyone. What do you think would happen in America on a day like that? I think people would be celebrating and they would be thinking, I can't believe it's happening. And, you know, how fortunate we are. And let me say something about the law of Moses. There is not a human government on this planet at any time that's ever had a law as beautiful as the law of Moses. 
what do we do with people in debt? We put them sometimes further into debt. You know, the, the Bible, even with a poor man, would tell him he can go in and harvest grain after the owner has done it. He'd be working. There's dignity in that. The owner could never harvest the grain that was against the road. That was for the sojourner, somebody on a, on a journey. And he just reached over. And if you were poor, let me tell you something else. You could go into any farm, any time of the year, and eat the produce that you could get. You couldn't take a, a basket. You couldn't take a sack. You can't harvest it to sell, but you don't have to go hungry. Do we take care of poor people like that? Make them work, encourage them to work, and give them new beginnings? You're kidding me. That's never happened. What other country has ever done something like that? The people of God did that. And when people look at the Bible like, uh, oh, that's just, it's just so far in the past. I, I remember there was a Chinese person when we were talking about the role of women. They said, oh, our ancestors thought that way. They need to be in subjection. Well, again, I could say, I didn't make the rules. I just tried to follow them. Coming back, though, here, year of Jubilee, everybody rejoicing, obviously. And another thing about the year of Jubilee, the Lord has provided in abundance the years before Jubilee. So they don't run out of produce for three years. Wow. That, that, that's amazing, and it is beautiful. Well, the mixed emotion. What do you think your emotion is when you are fasting because of sin in your life, the life of the others you love, and the life and the lives of the nation? Wouldn't that be a time that you would be saying repeatedly, forgive us, Lord. Help us to see more clearly. Help us not to keep repeating, making the same mistakes. May we never have a problem with idolatry. And we have that problem today. We just, we don't call them Molech. We call, and we don't call them Baal. We call them things like uh, popularity, and we worship being popular. Or we talk about wealth, and everybody, you know, my wife was telling me that she understands that in the past people were thinking about just being wealthier than the neighbor. He got a new car, you'd want to compete, and you get a new car. Now they don't do that. They look at royalty, or they look at stars, or they look at the people like Steve Jobs when he lived, or Bill Gates. 
I, I want what they have. Wow, is that possible? Everybody can have what the rich have? I don't think so. But it's the way we, we feel frustrated. We're not content. And in that discontent, we look for idols. And they cannot help us. Uh, I don't know much about uh, some of these stars. I'm trying to think of one, Britney Spears. I think she appreciates that there are people that hold her in high esteem, but not enough to say, don't spend your money on this. Let me give it to you if you're poor. But she can't be super rich. Or others can't get to be super rich if they don't sell. And so they're glad that people have little to nothing spend their money there. They're, it's appreciation in a veiled way. And it's dangerous. And then suddenly... Young girls think, if I'm ever going to be anything, I'm going to have to be like her. And we lose sight of a godly focus, a holy focus. Now, with that being said, I would like to finish the next few minutes with the greatest blessing of the Bible. Now, somebody will say, that year of Jubilee looks like a good one. And I think so. You know, I didn't tell you. Year of Jubilee, I believe the Lord, when he read from Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, he was reading a quotation from Isaiah 49. I know that. But that quotation, because of the linguistic aspect of the words, goes back to the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is in our Bibles written the year of liberty. The literal meaning is the year of release. And it is liberty, but release from death. You know, there's a release there and they're celebrating it. And the Lord saw that was being fulfilled in his ministry. Now somebody will say, well, it talks about giving sight to the blind. Yeah. Uh, make it where the length and walk. Yes. Uh, people in prison getting out. Do you really think it's uh, prison because you deserve to be there and you get out? Or is it another type of captivity? He who sins is a slave to sin. And so, in Jesus Christ, those two feast days come together all the time when you obey the gospel. Why do people come to Christ? Why did the people on the day of Pentecost? It pricked them in their hearts. And they... They cry out, what shall we do? And they're desperate in that. They know they've crucified the Son of God. They've been at cross purposes with God. 
and the Peter will say, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the new release. Didn't Paul say in Romans chapter 6, one comes up out of the water to newness of life. You have a new opportunity. Use it wisely. Use it with focus. That's the way I think they would have to look at their year of liberty, their year of release. And you have been released from sin because you turned to Christ. Do you want to go wallow in it again? You want to keep making the same mistakes over and over again? No, that's utter folly. Now, appreciating that, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 26. And um, let me read verses 9 through 13. Now, I hope you appreciate that chapter 26 is basically a hymn. It's like in the book of Psalms. If you look how it is structured on the page, there's a lot of singing going on in the Bible. But coming back, verse 9, the Lord speaking, for I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I've broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk uprightly. The greatest blessing in the Bible, I would love for you to trace this one down, through the prophets, into the New Testament, even the book of Revelation, ends with this great blessing. I will walk among you, and be your God, and you shall be my people. There is no greater blessing than that. A lot of things flow from that, but the blessing, God is our God, and we are his people. And it won't get better than that, not even in heaven. And this is where maybe it's a good time to ask the question, why do you want to go to heaven? Uh, you know, when we get older, and I'm getting older, we have some aches and pains, and sometimes people say, I can't wait to get to heaven where I get a new body, and I won't be stiff, and I'll be able to move freely, easily. Is that really why you want to go to heaven? 
I like trying to illustrate this with uh, in Argentina, and maybe you know a little bit about when the girls turn 15. It's popularized by Mexican people all the time. But in Argentina, it's the same. I used to tell my daughter, about the time you turn 14, we're moving back to the States where they don't celebrate things like that. Now, she didn't want to leave just yet. Now, I've had home Bible studies with people that will spend, and I wonder, where did they find the money to do it? Maybe $10,000. But that's for their daughter to have that special moment. And does she like that special moment? Of course she does. And she enjoys the idea of being able to celebrate that moment with her girls who are friends. And then she loves the time when, uh, uh, and on some occasion, she will dance with her father. And it's just so special. And he's, you know, just have a lot of money for all of this. And, but you know, sometimes people think about getting married a little bit that way. I want to have my party. I, I want to have that special moment where I have my good friends around me. And I just want to have that magical moment, they will say. How would you say that about going to heaven? I want to walk those streets of gold. And I've heard their mansions there. I'd like to have my mansion. Uh, it'd be better than anything I've had in my lifetime. Is that the reason to go? Is that the reason you should get married? One of the favorite sayings I like in Chile is that they will say when they're supposedly truly in love with you, bread and onions. Now, I kind of like that combination myself. But it's the idea we don't have to have much. Just bread and onions. And you see where you're going with that? I'm not going with, you know, how this can benefit me more than just the fact I will be the person I love. Isn't that the reason we should have for going to heaven? Or somebody will say, I've lived in what they consider hell for them. And maybe their father was abusive. And just anything to get out of that situation would, would be a relief. Is that a good reason for marrying? Don't think so. If I'm the groom, I don't want to hear that uh, she felt like I rescued her. I would hope she felt like we've met and we're on the same page. I want to get to heaven. Not just because I don't want to go to hell. And I don't want to. I don't think anybody does if they really understand what it's about. But I want to be with the Lord. That's what heaven's about. You know, David will describe that to me in the Psalm of the Resurrection, Psalm 16. But he will say in that hymn, in your right hand 
are places forevermore. He doesn't know what the places are. He just knows where they are. In the right hand of his Savior. We want that kind of mentality. Sometimes people say, I can't wait to get to heaven because I get to be with my grandfather and others who have been faithful Christians. And sometimes it sounds like it's going to be a family reunion there and maybe the Lord's off to the side just kind of watching and happy that we're happy. It won't be that way in heaven. We won't be distracted in that way. We'll be focused on God. And we'll be focused on the Lord. And when we talk about streets of gold, we are giving imagery to help us to appreciate how precious it is. It is, but not to take a pick and go up there and chip up the the gold from the streets to make you rich. That can't be. And it can't be that Jesus will be put aside up there. He'll be the focus. You want to marry because you love the person. And you want to go to heaven because you love the Lord. You just want to be with him forever. And it doesn't matter those other things to us as just being with him forever. Now, we sing songs that way. Jesus is everything to me and everything he will always be. That goes into heaven. I I was saying, that's the great blessing that continues into heaven. By the way, it's in the book of Revelation toward the end. I will be your God and you will be my people. If I've counted correctly, I, I really count on my fingers. You'll say, that's an old way to do it. But I feel like I'm really doing it when I do it that way. I don't want to go to the concordance and say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, I know the number. I like finding it on my own and finding it in the passage and writing down, yes, why I like that. But five times I found it in the book of Jeremiah. Five times I found it in the book of Ezekiel. It permeates the Old Testament. I will be your God and you will be my people. If that will not motivate us to come to Jesus all the time, then our hearts are hardened. We're not, we're not attuned to heaven's message and to God's plan. He'd be our God and we will be his people forever and ever. And that's the joy of going to heaven. It's the greatest blessing of the Bible. Don't you like it that you find it in the book of Leviticus? Somebody will say, I kind of thought this book would just be kind of dry, you know, 
talk about animal sacrifice. I hope you saw that. That wasn't dry the, the other night when I preached on chapter 1. But the really fine depth in this book, you can find it. And it's meant to be yours. It's meant to be yours. Tonight, if you don't have that relationship with God, Jesus said, if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. Jesus said, if you do not repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus said. Jesus said, he who will not confess me before men, I will not confess before my Father and his angels. Jesus said, do you really care about what Jesus says? And Jesus said, you must be born again of water and of the Spirit. I have a commentary. I read commentaries. And I know in one I was reading, and the fellow said, when I read John chapter 3, he was writing, well, early Christians thought that was about baptism. And I'm thinking, how far away do you have to get from it not to see it? You know, if they saw it that way, why wouldn't we not want to see what they saw? And we want to see heaven as they see it. We want to see God as they see him. And we want that to mold us and transform us into the people that would be pleasing to him. Tonight, if we can help you in any way, we want to. There's no time limit on the wanting. And if you were to decide an hour or two later, we'd be just excited. You know, when babies are born, you don't control the time they generally come into the world. My daughter-in-law went through 17 hours of labor. She still wants to have another one. So, But it's just to say that we, we don't control all those factors, but we do have the opportunity to decide. And we can decide right now. Or we can decide later. Whenever you do decide, we want you to come to the Lord. You know, Greg the other night said, and I like saying this, if you'll take one step in God's direction, he will run to you. Not just walk over casually. That's the story of the prodigal son. Running. Saw him at a distance. And he ran to his son. And he hugged him. And he kissed him. That's the way God is. When you make the right step in his direction. And I would trust it would be that way for all your brothers and sisters who are faithful in the Lord. Can we encourage you? We want to. While together we stand, while we sing.